Hello, and welcome to Farm to Fork, a program dedicated to exploring how food and drink are produced, delivered, and served throughout the Pioneer Valley. In every episode, we speak with some of the brightest lights in the valley culinary world, from gleaners, gatherers, hunters, fishermen, farmers, and packagers, to brewers and restaurateurs, and everyone in between. My name is Sue Timberlake. Jessica's off tonight, and show producer Carolyn Rutterman joins me in the studio. Today, we will be talking with John O. Niger, hope I did that right, John O. Niger, co-owner of Regenerative Design Group and owner of Big River Chestnuts in Sunderland, Mass. Welcome to the show, John O. My impression is that you are involved in a lot of different things, which keeps you very busy. What's your favorite project right now and why? Hi, Sue. Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on the, the show. I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Uh, yeah, there's there's uh, lots of different projects uh, love to get into and talk about. We're you know as as you said, I, I'm wearing a few different hats. I have a um, work with a um, design and planning firm, Regenerative Design Group in Greenfield, uh, and and then uh, also have Big River Chestnuts, a farm in in Sunderland. And uh, well, gosh, I could talk about some different farm projects that we work with at Regenerative Design Group. We do a lot of different kinds of um, work with different landowners, organizations, land trusts. Um, one, one farm we're working with uh, in uh, West Springfield is All Farmers, an immigrant farm organization. And um, they're, they're um, a really amazing group of people from different countries who are new to the U.S. and are getting set up farming. And we're, we're helping them uh, look at um, some different pieces of land, do some planning, figure out kind of how the layout will work, what kind of, you know, um, sometimes giving some permitting help for um, winding their way through areas where they're working around the Wetlands Protection Act. So, so we just sort of support organizations and landowners in whatever way they need it to do that kind of planning and so that's one organization uh, that we're really enjoying nice. working with right now. Very nice. Yeah. Um, so you, the regenerative design group, you work with a lot of different, do mostly in this area, all over the country or? Yeah, we're pretty, uh, we work pretty widely. We you know, work a lot in the Northeast, I'd say most of our work, but then we also have projects going uh, where we work um, in the, the um, southeast, um, North Carolina and Florida. And we I thought I saw one in, in Chapel Hill. Sorry. Yes. Right. There, yeah. Yep. Wildside or something like that. Very cool. Yeah. There's a, um, a farm there. We, we went down a few years back. We were helping the Triangle Land Trust and a property that they uh, acquired. They um, a pretty large uh, farm with some amazing connection to the river and wildlife corridors. And so we're really looking, taking a big picture look at how how that farm is going to work um, with the different areas, which are going to be the um, the center of the farm, and and um, where would the recreation areas be? And um, a lot of farm training was incorporated, and and. Um, so yeah, and then then that led to working with another farm in the area and and helping them um, think about property. We do a lot of a lot of the time it's walking property and helping people see what the 
the conditions of the land are and understand the way the um, water is flowing and how access and circulation and movement is happening on land. What are the different vegetation types, forest types, and um, really just that kind of deep land assessment and understanding. And that really leads to thinking about how people can do work on the land, uh, farming or living on the land or you know what's suitable there, what are the best practices. So it's a lot of fun, get to, get to work with people in lots of different situations and try and help them uh, live on the land in a, in, a, in a really good way. Do you rely on some of the old maps or how do you, how do you approach that? Yeah, we, it's, um, we definitely look at uh, historic maps to try and, and see what had happened uh, over time on that land, pretty much everywhere. The land is, has these sort of layers of disturbance and um, a lot of times, you know, some really um, poor practices happening. So trying to understand what had happened there historically. We'll look at soils maps. Uh, we'll, we'll look through old vegetation maps, but then we'll spend a lot of time out on the ground, walking the land. Ideally we'll walk there different times of the year want to see it after it's been raining a lot or when the water tables have come up or um, you know when the leaves fall off the trees and and the land really opens up and you can really see the topography see where it's steep and where it's really flat so so yeah it's a real it's a really um, uh, interesting part of um, reading the reading the landscape uh, and 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 then those, that should really direct what happens on the land. And this is really the counter to the way a lot of land use happens now is we, we sort of come in and we say, well, we want something there. And then we just do whatever it takes to put that thing there, whether it's a house, a road, a shopping mall, a whatever. So we're like, well, we have to move the stream over because the plan shows the the building over here oh boy. versus how do we actually make what w the way we live on the land work with the land. And so, you know, really trying to um, change that paradigm in a deeper way. That's interesting. When you buy a house out here in Western Mass, if you buy an old farmhouse from like the 16 or 1700s, they are so well situated. You, you don't realize it until you've been there for a year with the right exposure to the South and just, mm -hmm. you know, people... People did it. They didn't have the big backhoes, so they had to kind of work with the right. land as it existed, and also making sure that you discover where the um, where the runoff is, and you know where the the standing wind is in the winter. It's very interesting. We've gotten so far away from that. That's wonderful to hear that you yeah. you really try and sort of uh, work almost in a Taoist way. You work with the land rather than fighting it. Yeah, yeah, and and just. And, and a lot of times it's helping people see and understand in a deeper way the land that they're living on. So it's like, um, it's like show, you know, people haven't necessarily, if they haven't spent the, that kind of time or recognize the different plants or the different ways water changes through the season. So it's just really like a, a, a raising awareness for people about the place where they live because because it's not something that many of us grew up with. It's not really, honestly, it's not something I grew up with. I grew up in suburbia. And so I, I kind of learned this over, over many years of studying, spending time on the land, just really digging into it over, over a long period of time. So 
you know, we're all kind of, a lot of us, I should say, are, are on that journey back to deeper connection to the land. That's an, I um, talked to a friend who's a um, civil engineer and he does people's perk tests. And um, it's funny because they used to dig, I mean, they still dig a hole in certain seasons and all that, but they also look at the vegetation now and say, oh, look, there's all that swamp vegetation. This must be wet. <laughs> Just, mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. so because I remember builders used to go, let's just dig this perk hole like when it's really dry after a drought. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. Build a house yeah. there. It's like, oh, you don't want to do that to the homeowner. So I guess a lot of the professions have gotten a lot better about, you know, not trying to bend the bend the curve, but working yeah. with it yeah. a little bit. Yeah, there's a lot of people really trying to change the way they're practicing. The engineers are coming along. You know, there's some old school engineers and there's there's some new environmental engineering, really um, aware um, people who are, who are really, really trying to bring in better, better practices, care for the land, for sure. Did, did I see that you also, um, the reason I asked about the other parts of the country, because I saw Wildside, but that, that was the Chapel Hill project. Was there a Wildside project up this way too? Yeah, that's right. In, in Conway, Wildside Gardens, Wildside Cottage and Gardens, uh, tended by Sue Bridge. Uh, we worked with Sue for many years when she first built the cottage. Uh, we uh, helped lay out the gardens around the house. It's on a hilltop. Um, she built a very beautiful, small cottage uh, facing south with a green roof, passive solar. And then we designed terraces, forest garden, uh, all sorts of uh, a nut grove, um, all sorts of different kinds of planting areas to create this kind of what I consider a, a homestead scale uh, production nice. with a lot of um, diversity there, a lot of different kinds of food growing. The, the forest garden had kiwis and persimmons and plums and pears and um, all sorts of small fruit and and just a lot of diversity, a lot of food growing in really small spaces. Just and and so it's a little bit of an education center. They have a little website uh, and and do some events there, and um, it's it's really sweet and it's a, a great example of what kinds of things you can do in on sloped land. You know, a lot of the land in the valley and and the hills around the valley are have have slopes and and steep areas and so takes special consideration to to not cause a lot of erosion or how to capture the water so we did a lot of swales or we did some swales there where we uh, caught the water coming down a slope after there was some construction there and um, infiltrating the water and, and using that infiltrated water to feed the planting so they didn't need irrigation uh, so so it's a it was a real testing ground, trying out lots of new things. Uh, and, and, and a lot of people come, come there to, to see um, what these things look like. So it's a, it's a, I think a really special place in our area. Sounds delightful. I heard once that the Maya, that that's how they sort of managed all their civilization was managing the water with underground catchments and also did mm -hmm. terracing because they built on the mountains also. I heard you say, um, Kiwi. So kiwi grows in this area? Yeah, we can grow a hardy kiwi. So it's different than the fuzzy kiwi, uh, which is only only grows in warmer climates. Uh, so the hardy kiwi, and then there's also an arctic kiwi that grows even further north. 
Uh, it's a small kind of grape size berry, grows on vines, has no fuzz on the outside. So you can just pop them in your mouth like a grape. They're totally delicious, super high vitamin C. So for thinking about food systems and resilience and you know how can we grow more of our food within our area, take care of our needs more locally. Um, kiwi is an example of a plant that could really replace the our um, importing citruses for our vitamin C. And we could be growing these things ourselves and, and supplying our own needs within our region, within our communities. Uh, and kiwi, I think, is an example of that. It's a um, super prolific. You can grow each vine can produce 50, 100, even upwards of 200 pounds per vine per year. So super productive, super nutritious. Um, and it's an example of kind of what are the plants that we could grow that could really bring us towards more self-sufficiency and more resilience. That's interesting. I have a lot of trouble with bears. They're very happy with my uh, uh -huh. grapes and anything else mm -hmm. they can get to in my yard. Every time I put up a fruit tree, I... I know that I'm going to have more. So do you think they'd recognize the hardy kiwi? That's a funny one. I don't know if the bears would go after. I think that the thing about it is even a lot of the birds don't recognize it because they're green when they're ripe. We don't have a lot of fruit that is um, turns green when it's ripe. So a lot of birds don't even recognize it oh, uh, as, a, as a ripe fruit. I don't know about bears, though. I've never heard of that being an issue. Uh, so... Um, not really sure about that one. I think it's a wor worth trying. I, I grow them um, and have grown them in several places in the area. I grow them at my my homestead in Leverett, and um, we have bears around. I've never never been an issue there. Oh, interesting. I have hazelnuts, and it took them a year or two, even though they're native. Um, took the bears a year or two to figure out what they are. Now I never get one hazelnut. So. <laughs> the, the bears and the squirrels. And too. the squirrels, yeah, they all get them. Um, yeah. By the way, Station Break, you're listening to Farm to Fork on Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, 103.3 FM in Northampton. And we're talking with Jono Niger, <laughs> co-owner. I want to make that a soft G. I'm so sorry. Co-owner of Regenerative Design Group and owner of Big River Chestnuts in Sunderland, Mass. So, well, that's interesting. I'm going to see if I can find a place to get hardy. It, can you get it at local, um, do you think, some of the farm? play the you know the regular uh, uh, garden centers or is it a specialty like um, the local yeah I think some of the garden centers might be carrying it it's a little bit unusual it's sort of in that in that realm of some of these more unusual fruit uh, the other thing about these is that there's always sort of which varieties to grow there's a lot of selection happening okay. um, for different varieties so I think a little research to figure out which are the kind of up and coming varieties, ones that people have had really good success with. Um, and uh, so they're either a local uh, nursery or uh, garden center or online. Yeah, interesting. And you said there's a bunch of varieties. So people want to do a little research before they yeah. do that or talk to folks like you that would know what might, would it be different varieties if you were like up in the hill towns where it's a little colder than down here in the valley or up in Greenfield or? No, because we're all in the same range where the, the climate, the really cold freezes are pretty much the same. But I'd say if you were 
further north, if you're getting into southern Vermont or, or central Vermont, then you're probably switching from a hardy kiwi to the Arctic kiwi, the different species. So it's really when the climate really, we get into some real different zones um, that, uh, that you're looking at um, different species or, or concerns more, maybe, maybe there's some that do better on drier land or, or maybe there's cultivars that are, um, you're looking for something that, um, fruits earlier, or, um, you know, there's some different characteristics. People are breeding them for, um, the fruit quality, the nutritional levels in them, um, I think I would say the same thing you mentioned hazelnut, which is a really exciting, we could talk uh, nut trees for sure. And, but hazelnuts are real up and coming. And that's another one where people can plant the wild American hazelnut, but there's these hybrid cultivars, sort of like the difference between a wild apple and these selected apples that we eat, the varieties that are improved, they're, they're, they've um, been selected for these amazing flavor characteristics and colors and um, hazelnuts are kind of coming into that as well, where these, oh, these improved varieties, which where the nuts are larger, they're easier to shell. Um, and, uh, and it's a pretty exciting area of, um, um, potential for local farms, uh, to, to start developing a hazelnut, uh, industry even within our area. So that's something a lot of people are looking at. I've been planting them, uh, at big river chestnuts as well, trialing, uh, different varieties and seeing which ones do well, which ones, which ones we should be growing more of. How, how many years before you get nuts from a hazelnut? If you planted it, I don't know if you plant a bigger um, piece, it would probably grow faster, but you know, one year, three years, five years. Uh, it's like, I think it's three to five years uh, to really come into um, setting, setting the nuts and then, and then, uh, growing big enough to really support more nut production. So you're looking at, you're looking at a few years, you know, four or five years, and then you're starting to get some good nut production off of it. But then, then it'll produce every year, uh, you know, for years and years and years. So that's the exciting part about some of these perennial crops is there's an effort to get them established and you do have to care for them during the year, a little, you know, some, some amount of care, uh, but then they just produce year after year. So it's a very different cycle than an annual vegetable uh, kind of garden that, that uh, where the, you can just get a lot of, lot of food for a lot less effort. That sounds like a great idea, especially out here. I, I, I had heard that people were looking at the hazelnuts, but I didn't know how far along that, that, had, that had gotten. But, and they're, they're native, and you're saying when you get a, a more of a hybrid it had, they have other advantages. Yeah. The, the hybridization is mixing the pretty much the American species with the European, uh, filbert species, uh, primarily to get a larger size. Um, because the American, the, the native nuts, if you see them on the, on the, um, bushes, the, the American hazelnuts are tiny, tiny little things. And, and really, if you, when you start to get into cracking them and, and processing them, larger nuts are going to be much better. So I have some early hybrids, which are maybe the size of a dime, double the size of an American uh, hazelnut. But now uh, the, the latest ones coming out are getting a little bit larger, more like the size of, say, a nickel. 
Um, and, and they're just, the quality is increasing and the ease of growing them. But, but it is, it is a funny thing, um, that, uh, um, there's still a lot of challenges. And one of the main challenges people have is, is harvesting them before the squirrels get them. So <laughs> there's some, <laughs> there's some tricks with up. that. <laughs> I gave up. <laughs> the first year I had a whole bunch and then it was like the next year they were gone before they were even, you know, they were, they were gone. I was like, yeah, took? I thought maybe the raccoons and I thought it was the bear because I saw them sniffing them like two weeks before uh, and they were uh, sniffing away. And then one day they were just, they were, they were gone. I said, it must've been the bear. Cause how, but you know, it, I suppose the squirrels could go up all the limbs and they maybe beat the bear. <laughs> oh yeah. It's usually the squirrels, honestly, that, but, but I'll tell you the trick. And this comes from Sam Thayer, who's a, um, who's a, um, writer and has written some amazing wild harvesting uh, books and um, his the trick and I this is pretty much foolproof is you harvest them before they're ripe so you keep an eye on them and watch them and then as the color starts to change a little bit in the nut inside the husk and you can press your thumb on it and it gets a little bit loose you have to get them like a week or so before the really ripe get them off the bush and then you finish ripening them inside your house away from the squirrels. And, uh, and that's pretty much, that will work, but you do got to be on at the end of summer, early fall. I tell you a little story about that, which was, um, one time uh, we grow them nearby. We grow them actually at the uh, Leverett co-op in the, in the um, back behind the co-op, a, a bunch of different bushes. And, um, one year we were pulling out my wife and I onto the road and going around the, um, the little store there. And I see a, a squirrel with a bunch of hazelnuts in its mouth Uh running across the road. (laughs) And we looked at each other and said, Oh, I guess we're missing the harvest here. (laughs) It's like running away, running away with all of our nuts. My squirrels actually chew my gas cans and the cap on my lawnmower and just looking for, it's amazing. They, they do everything there. I don't know if they're that hungry or just that curious about what tastes good. So, huh? But I, I'll have to try that. I'll try to watch it like a hawk and <laughs> see if I can. Yeah, give it a try. See how see how it works. When the bear's sniffing them but didn't take them, it's probably when I should grab them, right? <laughs> that could be. That could be. They're starting it, to smell good. Yeah, I'll put a bear alarm out there and tell them. Um, so we've talked a lot about uh, the re- regenerative design group and sort of started to talk to nut about nuts a little bit. But do you want to start to talk about nuts and then in a little bit we'll go to a I think we'll be at the break in a minute or two here. So, yeah, I could just start saying a little bit about Big River Chestnuts, which is a a small farm in Sunderland, Mass. That I started in 2018, and uh, we've been planting primarily chestnuts, and we're planting a whole bunch of other stuff like the hazelnuts and other nuts like heart nuts, uh, chinka pins, and then we're also growing small fruit in the alleys between the chestnuts. And we've had chickens running underneath, uh, grazing them underneath the chestnut trees. So it's a mixed kind of diversified agroforestry planting. Oh, why, why chickens? Are they, they don't bother the nut trees, I take it, or they don't, they, yeah, they fly a little to, bit, but. Yeah, a little bit. We have to protect the bases because we don't want them as the trees are getting established. We don't really want them scratching at the bases but they really benefit the soil. So having livestock like that, their, their um, manure 
is uh, filled with microorganisms. And so it's it's got a lot of nitrogen, of course, chicken manure, but it's also got sort of a lot of life to it. And it, it's inoculating and, and helping to improve the soil. So we had some, um, like a lot of farmland, um, pretty much everywhere, the, the soils can be pretty degraded, have compaction, loss of lack of nutrients or, or even unbalanced minerals and so the so the manure of the chickens is really helping to improve the soil uh, and and boost it back. And we're doing a lot of other practices to improve the soil, adding um, microorganisms. We're um, um, decompacting with a, a subsoiler. We're we're adding mineral amendments. Uh, um, we add a lot of wood chips to get the get the biomass going and the organic matter going. Um, so doing a lot of different things to improve the conditions uh, there, in addition to um, having the chickens there. My um, my father, who was a farmer and I never paid any attention to, <laughs> said that chicken manure was absolutely the best manure, except for it has weed seeds in it. So it's... <laughs> yeah. But, but you, well, so you'd agree with that then, that it's got a lot of... Aside from the nitrogen, it's actually all those other things that we know about. This was, you know, 40 years ago. So, but we know things are in chicken manure now that are really good for the soil. I oh, think. yeah, it's amazing. So, so we ran the chickens through. We took a pause on it this year, but they were there for, for the first three years. And um, the conditions in the part of the field where the chickens have been um, moving in a rotational grazing system have, have improved dramatically. It's been amazing. And so what it is, it's this perennial kind of pasture, grasses, herbs, seedling trees from the from the wild trees around the area are all growing in and around the, the young chestnut trees as they're growing up. The trees are fairly widely spaced, so there's lots of room between them. So that's one of the facets of this kind of agroforestry tree cropping system is how can we use that space in between the trees for the years while they're growing, getting bigger, getting established. There's just a lot of space there. So we're doing a lot of different things. So the small fruit are growing in between the trees in a typical what's called alley cropping uh, pattern. And uh, we grow elderberry, aronia, and black currant primarily <clears throat> in those alleys. And then, and then the chickens underneath the trees is kind of a, a pattern called silvopasture, which is a tree pasture mix where livestock and trees are, are synergistically working together and mutually supporting each other because the trees are giving shade. Uh, they're, they're dropping their leaves and helping to mulch the ground. Uh, and you're getting the benefits of the chicken manure and the chickens are scratching the ground or other kinds of livestock can work as well in those systems. So it's, it's pretty exciting. We start to integrate different components together that can support each other uh, and, um, and, and, and you get benefits from all the different parts that are happening. And you're also thinking through uh, succession through long-term. So the small fruit that are growing in the alleys, it's really for the 10 to 15 years before the trees get big and are gonna, um, the canopies will grow over those fruit. So, so we're just sort of taking advantage of these changes over time. So it's a timing. It's, um, it's almost like cooking. 
only on a very long mm-hmm. time scale. We're gonna um, we're gonna take a, a station break here, and if you want to hold the thought about nut trees, we'll come back on that. Um, we need to take a station break, but please stay with us because when we return, we will continue our discussion with John O'Niger. Uh, co-owner of Regenerative Design Group and owner of Big River Chestnuts in Sunderland, Mass. We're going to talk about chestnuts when we come back. You're listening to Farm to Fork on Valley Free Radio, 103.3 FM, an independent, nonprofit, community-run station in Northampton, Mass. The show streams on valleyfreeradio.org, where you can also find our program schedule and become involved with the station. Thank you, River Valley Co-op, for your support of Valley Free Radio. River Valley Co-op specializes in fresh, local, and organically grown foods, fresh produce, meat and seafood, cheese and dairy, bread and baked goods, and an in-house deli, along with a wide selection of bulk foods and a large selection of natural and organic grocery items. Owned by its customers, although everyone is welcome. Co-op ownership is not required. Open daily 8 to 10, 330 North King Street, Northampton. Phone 413-584-2665, rivervalleymarket.com. Thank you, River Valley Co-op, for your support of free speech in the Pioneer Valley. From the one-ups to the hit points, Kadesh Flow to Mega Ran, Press Start to Continue gives you two full hours of the best in video game remixes and nerdcore hip-hop. Join Morlock every Monday night at 9 on Valley Free Radio 103.3 FM and check out the show archives at starttocontinue.com. Press Start to Continue, bringing nerd music to the masses. I found a bike today It looks so good, why did you throw it away? You want to learn to fix your bike? How to keep it tuned up so it's there for you when you need it? Or maybe you know already, but you just need to borrow a bike-specific tool that you don't have. Well, come to the Bike Lab. Almost every Saturday since 2004, from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m., here in Northampton at 12 Northern Avenue. Come with your bike or your questions. And your willing attitude. <laughs> Spare part scavenger hunt every weekend. Vengan al Bike Lab de Northampton, el taller de bicicleta. Aprende a arreglar tu bicicleta y a divertirte. All repairs guaranteed to the end of the driveway. Details are online at pedalpeople.coop. That's the Saturday Bike Lab at 12 Northern Avenue, 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. They say freedom isn't free, but at the Bike Lab it is. Ya subase a la bici, compa. Trepese a la de montaña, la bici urbana, la bici cross. Lleguele a la bicicleta. Ya de menos a la eléctrica o a la estática, ya no hay cost. It's time to ask Mr. Green from the Sierra Club. Melinda in Lakeland, Florida asks, Hey, Mr. Green, I know that bottled water is bad and I rarely buy it. However, I enjoy seltzer water. Is there a way to make my own at home and save on bottles? You're right about bottled water. It's been so thoroughly and convincingly ripped for so many reasons by so many critics. Worldwide sales of bottled water exceeded $50 billion a year. That's $50 billion if invested in water systems, which could provide safe drinking water for the billion of our thirsty fellow humans who don't have it and save the lives of 2.2 million who die from waterborne diseases every year. But if you got to have your fizz fix... 
Soda makers, which use refillable carbon dioxide cylinders, and soda siphons, which have single-use cartridges, are easy to use and cost about $50 to $300. It's a simple appliance for your kitchen that can put fizz into water from the tap. You'll get delicious carbonated water and won't have to worry about disposable plastic bottles. Ask Mr. Green and learn a lot more online at sierraclubradio.org. My name is Sue Timberlake. I'm hosting the show tonight. Jessica has the night off. And show producer Caroline Rutterman very graciously is running the board and producing the show Farm to Fork tonight. She's been covering for us for the last six months, nine months, and we are so, so thankful to her. Uh, She's done a wonderful job, and thank you for covering us in the lurch. Um, Tonight, we have a guest in the studio, and it's um, John O. Niger co-owner of Regenerative Design Group and the owner of Big River Chestnuts in Sunderland, Mass. We were starting to talk about, excuse me, um, sort of starting a nut farm. And what what led you to decide to start a nut farm, and how did you pick your location? Hmm. Great question, Sue. Well, uh, I've been working, as we were talking about earlier, with lots of different landowners uh, over the years, uh, helping them get set up. I've been planting at my place up in Leverett, so trying out lots of different things, uh, pr- primarily on a smaller scale. Uh, and and so um, there's a desire to scale things up and scale up what uh, we've been doing and, and figure out how to um, grow more at a, at a, not a huge farm scale, not like a Midwest thousands of acres scale, but, a but, you know, enough, enough food to, to really, um, feed people. And so the, the nut farm and growing chestnuts was, a desire came from a desire to, to prove out what we've been learning over the years, um, trialing lots of different trees, tree crops, nut trees, fruit trees, all these different things. Uh, and so really the way I, I, I landed through personal connections, I got to know the folks who own the property that I'm on now. Uh, that's the way a lot of, a lot of land gets sold in the, around the Valley. Uh, there's not, there's not a lot of l- land that comes up for sale in the market. It's, it's often going through channels and networks and connections. Uh, and it's, it's actually an issue of a, access to land uh, for people is a, is a really um, a limitation for a lot of people. So through some, um, some friends and, and uh, folks I had known for a while, this land became available. And I said, well, this is a good spot. It's very central in Sunderland. So it's really accessible. Uh, it's a great place to do a, um, a fairly small planting. So we've got about seven and a half acres planted out in chestnuts um, with a lot of other stuff in there too. And then um, the idea is that it's central, it's accessible, it's a place people can come and see what this kind of planting, this kind of agroforestry diversified system looks like, uh, can learn from it. And um, and then it's got some buildings connected to it. So we're also setting up some uh, small processing um, facilities for perennial crops. So that's uh, actually new part of the initiative is it's uh, the Woodlanders uh, tree crop food hub. So we'll be um, ha- having equipment there that 
farmers who start to grow these different kinds of things, whether they're chestnuts or hazelnuts or elderberries or, or um, aronia berries, uh, they can bring them in there and utilize this equipment that's not that common. And, um, and then we can also do some shared marketing as well. So, so yeah, a little long. Well, sort of an uh, incubator for the nut, nut tree, tree nut crop farmers. That's that, right. Yeah. Wow. Um, so, I, I had heard that there wasn't something to shell um, hazelnuts, but there must be, right? There's definitely equipment that can, can do that. Oh yeah. 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 There's, there's definitely equipment. The challenge that we're finding for a lot of these crops uh, is that there's equipment for the huge scale for these big industrial farming models, whether it's, you know, um, Turkey grows a lot of hazelnuts and in, in, in Europe and um, in the Pacific Northwest. But the, for the small to middle sized growers, that's really where we're going to be at for most of the farms around Western Massachusetts and New England. Uh, and so finding that equipment that's kind of scaled to, to the right size or where we can aggregate together, a lot of small farmers can bring their crops together to one place and have shared equipment. Uh, and, and a lot of, um, there's a, a models around the world for um, cooperative ventures with um, farmers doing food processing together. So oh, um, that's something that we're looking at a lot. Brilliant. And um, yeah, and so um, you're gonna, you're looking into some of that equipment. So as you find things mm -hmm. that work, you may, you may bring farmers together for that. That's, that's very interesting. That's what the milk farmers did years ago. I mean, that's because they had right. to do, test the milk and um, some of that's those cooperatives right. and Cabot same thing oh that's that's very interesting so um time frame is that your sort of 10-year 15-year horizon or just even crudely what you're thinking you must yeah. have some things now that you're trying I imagine. well i think it's coming online right now because uh we're already seeing uh chestnuts there's a lot of people planting chestnuts there's a lot of interest uh that's sort of the the leading crop because it's so uh well established or it's well recognized uh it's still new for a lot of people in the u.s since since we haven't had a chestnut culture really for a couple generations but uh but there's people a lot of the people who, from around the world who have um you know our our first or um second um degree immigrants um they they um have a connection to chestnuts from their region of the world where they came from or um, or whether you bought them on the streets of new york uh it's um it's something that we have a strong connection to they grow here they're pretty easy to um to cook and process and um store so so that's sort of the leading crop that we're that we're really getting into um to start with and then and then some of the others will follow uh, over the next really few years. So it's happening right now. Uh, you know, we're already looking into equipment that we'll probably start purchasing over the next few years. Oh, wow. Um, for some of our listeners, they probably remember that um, just, you know, chestnuts that we had a blight or something that took out all the chestnut trees because there used to be a lot here. So mm -hmm. uh, how is it that you're growing chestnuts, if I can sort of jump ahead? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. These are a different species. So the, the American chestnuts got uh, a blight that was imported through, through some of these other species coming from other parts of the world. Uh, most of the American chestnuts 
are gone, though not all of them. There are actually quite a few survivors in, in different parts of the, the East Coast and the US. Uh, the chestnuts that were growing are uh, Chinese and Chinese hybrids, meaning that they're these complex crosses of some of the different chestnut species. So they might have um, predominantly Chinese genes, but they might have some of the European chestnut genes, Japanese, maybe even some American, maybe some of the chinkapin mm. species that are in the Appalachians. Uh, so, so there are these um, crosses that that are have been worked on for hundreds of years, you know, and, and then there's a real resurgence over the last several decades of selection and, and breeding to, to come up with um, trees that are, they're smaller trees that these trees, as opposed to the American chestnut, which is a forest tree, could grow 100, 150 feet or more. And it's a big, giant, tall forest tree the Chinese and Chinese crosses are, are more like 30, 40, 50 feet tall, better for an agricultural setting where we're talking about, where we can do some of these other things. Like I was talking about ranging livestock underneath them or growing um, um, fruit between them or, or different kinds of crops or um, between them. So it fits better within an agricultural setting, these, um, these kinds of chestnuts that we're growing. One of the questions when I saw that it was on the chestnut was going to ask you if you ever will use them for wood, but they're not they're not like the American chestnut, so we won't have any huge eight you know eight by sixteen beams being yeah produced. There are timber types people are selecting for um, timber types from these other chestnut species, and there are um, people in the southeast and on the west coast that can grow the European chestnuts, which are, can get somewhat larger. So no, not the same way that we grew the um, American chestnuts and we had that source of wood uh, in the same kind of way. But I have faith that um, the, the American chestnuts will come back. They'll, they'll be part of the forest again. Uh, and, and, and we can get um, Tim, we can get smaller timber, smaller wood from, from the um, species that we can grow right now as well. Yeah. And, and when you have a nut tree, is there a life to it? And then at some point you, you plant again, or do they, they go for a hundred years producing nuts? Do uh, you know? Well, hundreds of years, there's uh, trees in Europe that are a thousand years plus still really? producing. Wow. Yeah. So that's the, that's the amazing part of it. And there's cultures around the world that have subsisted on chestnuts, you know, when crops have failed, when hard times have come, people have lived the the chestnuts are uh, a staple crop it's it's not like other nuts it's not like the hazelnut or the pecan that are that are more of an oil high fat uh nut chestnuts are very different they're actually a carbohydrate uh rich um they have some protein but they're also high in vitamin c high in potassium uh but they don't have virtually any oil uh, and they have a lot of water. So there's some issues around that. But so it's really more almost like growing wheat on a tree or, um, you know, a, a grain or a staple crop coming from a tree. So that's really uh, the reason that people have grown it around the world for millennia and and they have supported communities and cultures over long, long periods of time. And, and the, the cultural history of chestnuts um 
goes goes really deep into you know many people around the world. That's interesting. I had no I had no idea. I um I'm I'm shocked to hear that about chestnuts. So you mm-hmm. could actually almost live on them, and they're really a staple. And the tree roots must go really deep. So when you have a drought, like we're having right now, as long as the tree's really established, they'll they'll make it through this. I assume. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And so they're they're it's great for. Um, where we're growing in Sunderland, the soil conditions are actually pretty good. Uh, they're a little bit depleted and there's been a lot of tillage. So there's issues around that, but, but it's, it's a nicer soil condition and the chestnuts can actually grow up on steep hillsides. Uh, there's a early book, um, by J Russell Smith called tree crops, which was really about growing trees to, to stabilize soils, soil erosion from all the cutting and clearing and um, damage that was being wrought early in the last century, uh, the, the, that these trees could be growing on this very harsh land and be part of restoring and regenerating the land. And I think that we're going into another cycle of that where there's so much land that's degraded and damaged and, and needs to be restored and renewed. And these trees could be part of that. Chestnuts, hazelnuts, all these... Um, all these kind of trees that can produce food for us, they can produce food for wildlife, but they can also stabilize the soil and, and start restoring the land. Um, so super that the trees on, on, on at big river chestnuts have not had a, any issue with the drought, um, except for my little ones, some of the little ones that are just getting going and haven't really had a chance to send that taproot really deep. Um, have gotten a little bit stressed, but yeah. the, the larger trees, not a problem. Just a quick note for the FCC. Um, if you're listening to us tonight, you're listening to Farm to Fork on Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, 103.3 FM in Northampton. And we are talking with John O'Niger, co-owner of Regenerative Design Group and owner of Big River Chestnuts in Sunderland, Mass. So would you plant next to, like a lot of people had trouble their farms. They were near the river when we had, I think it was Hurricane Irene and there was flooding everywhere, would tree crops survive something like that if it was brief or, you know, are yeah, they? If it's, if it's brief, yes. Um, chestnuts, the, the, the one of the main needs is well-drained soil. So if you're low in the floodplain and there's frequent flooding, it's not really the best tree, but there's other trees that could grow there, other tree crops, you know, hazelnuts are a little more tolerant of, of wetter soils or, there's even some northern pecans people are growing. There's heart nuts, which is a Japanese walnut, which is really tasty, or even the black walnuts. Um, and then even in the warmer parts of the valley, uh, in some areas, uh, there's a, um, a lot of interest in growing the uh, Carpathian walnut as well. So, um, so that's, um, that's uh, the chestnuts really can do well where it's well-drained, full sun and acidic soil. Those are the three main things. And, and we have a lot of areas, a lot, there's a lot of degraded pasture land where people have been hanging for a long time. A lot of the nutrients are gone. Uh, it's, it's pretty compacted from, from the, the grazing or the haying over periods of time. And that's really the best um, place for uh, getting chestnuts established. And we do have a lot of uh, acidic soil from what I understand. I guess, yes. I guess we're known Definitely. for that. Um, so, so there's a bunch of questions. I want to make sure we get everything in. We have 
probably 10, 10 minutes or so left. Um, I guess, do you want to talk about uh, what the steps are to creating a nut farm or, you know, whether you're going to go for organic grower status or what other crops you're going to, you know, sort of how you're going to launch this together? I mean, it, your elderberries, will they yeah. be um, processed or, I mean, provided? I, I, I had a family member that made elderberry wine. I don't know what else you can make with it, so I'm, I'm a little ignorant uh, on that. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's see. I could I could say um, we're we're organic uh, certified. We've gone through the certification process, and oh, we're nice. also certified through the Real Organic program, which is a kind of an add-on certification that goes beyond uh, organic. Because um, maybe that's a whole another topic for another show is all the the issues around the or organic program and, Would, and limitations. I was but so we're real. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, can you just sum that up for our listeners? Because I, I, we've talked a lot about some of that, but just the difference between real organic and organic, because it feels like the, the, the standard slipped a little bit and real, real organic is, is newer, right? I think. Yeah, it's an add-on. So you have to be certified organic through, through the um, USDA federal program. And then you add on the real organic, which is just some additional uh requirements there's you know with livestock make you know livestock have to have a um a, um, more access outside on pasture um so some of the um indoor feeding systems uh indoor livestock raising systems aren't um aren't allowed under real organic also hydroponic growing is not allowed so there's just these certain zones where uh um people felt like the national organic program had had slipped Oh, okay. All right. So it's really, it's an, it's an add on, as you say, just a, a, a higher standard, sort of like being not only when Medicare says your hospital is good, but then you get accredited. It's like a little extra. Yeah, it's that's a, right. A little extra. That's requirement. Right. There's a few of those. Yeah. There's also a regenerative organic um, add on kind of certification. So that's pretty exciting area. Um, I think for, for um, something. So we're, so to answer your other question, we're growing the elderberries and the aronia and the other small fruit and harvesting those, primarily processing them enough to freeze them fresh. And then we're selling them to people to use. Um, so in the case of the elderberry, it's either folks who want to make their own syrups or jams or wines uh, or um, bakeries or restaurants or um, herbalists, diff different people who want to take the berries and cook them and, and, and process them in all the different ways that you can. It's pretty versatile and it's, they're super nutritional. And all the berries that we grow are super nutritional and can be used, um, mixed with other berries or um, um, all sorts of different things. Um, so so that's, that's what we're... Um, doing kind of, as I was saying, is sort of a successional plan that's going to be primarily for the years while the uh, chestnuts are getting established. And then a lot of those berries will start to go out to the edges of the farm once the trees have gotten, the chestnuts are larger and, and, and making more shade over the, the bigger part of the field. How do you actually process the chestnuts? Yeah, the, the nuts are, it's, it's kind of exciting. 
um, when they start to fall in the end of September and October. And so that's going to come up here in the next month or so. Uh, they fall down, they, they, the husks open up and the spiny husks, if people have seen them, they, they, they are very well protected with sharp spiny husks. They open up and they fall to the ground. And so you have to pick them up off the ground. There are some mechanical ways to do it, but it only makes sense if you're at a much larger scale. Uh, so you pick them up and then they pretty much have to get uh, cleaned up and refrigerated right away. Cause I mentioned that they have a lot of water in them. Uh, in order to keep them fresh, they have to be refrigerated uh, and kept refrigerated. And then to process them, you can do a number of different things. You just pull them out and you can roast them up. Um, you can shell, shell them and then grind them up for flour. Uh, you can do a lot of different things. And anecdotally or incidentally, one of the reasons that a lot of people in the U.S. who have tried chestnuts may not even like them is because they've gotten them from a grocery store and they might be imported <laughs> chestnuts. Yeah, and they're imported from Italy or somewhere else in the world. But a lot of times the grocery stores don't really know how to um, care for them. Uh, they might just be sitting on a shelf. They're not refrigerated. And the chestnuts will go moldy in a few days if they're not refrigerated consistently. Uh, and so, so people have you know, often come to our, our um, market uh, where, where we roast chestnuts in the fall and, um, and say, I don't really like chestnuts. And we say, well, maybe you haven't had a, had a, had a well-roasted, well-cared-for, well-roasted chestnut. Try this. And, and oh, I, wow. I'd say pretty much every time everybody, people go, that's amazing. That is really good. Um, I, you know, so we're, so to mention that chestnut season is around the corner, uh, we'll be having chestnut roasting uh, at the farm, Big River Chestnuts in Sunderland. We're at 195 River Road and uh, starting at the end of September, we'll be doing chestnut roasting every Sunday from 11 to 3. And uh, it's a lot of fun. We'll, we're, we've got the roasters right there, the fresh chestnuts, we're, and, and it's it's a very social and um, um, fun kind of seasonal time to, to be eating food and enjoying the, the fruits of the harvest. Well, this is a perfect way to end. Boy, the time flew tonight. We'd like to thank our guest, John O. Niger, co-owner of Regenerative Design Group and owner of Big River Chestnuts in Sunderland, Mass. You may find additional information about Farm to Fork on Valley Free Radio's website, valleyfreeradio.org, O-R-G. Our theme song, Sometimes I Wonder Where My Food Comes From, was written and performed by Scraggly Dan and the Stragglers for this Farm to, Farm to Fork radio program, and we appreciate that they wrote that song for us. Um, this Farm to Fork show will re-air this Thursday, 11 to 12, and I think, is there a new show promotion? Uh, oh, here we go. Sorry. This is live radio, can you tell? Catch Sports Plus with Big D Baker and Joe here on Valley Free Radio 103.3 FM on Saturdays from 11 a.m. to 12 p.m. and enjoy a recap of local and national sports, in-depth discussions of issues in sports, and live guests with Matt Baker and Daryl Clark. Thanks again for listening, and stay tuned for Twilight's Poetry Pub with host Tommy Twilight.